Hello FAC family. Uh, I know this last week has been quite crazy and uh, I was so looking forward to fellowshipping with you on Sunday morning and uh, while we're unable to do that we do praise God that we can at least continue to study the Word of God through uh, the wonderful blessing of modern technology. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8, where we'll continue our time in, uh, in the study through Acts. Um, as you're turning there, I, I do want you to know that our elders are uh, keeping a close watch on this whole pandemic. Uh, I want you to know also that the decision to cancel services was not made lightly, and also that it wasn't made in fear. We know uh, that we have a confidence and a hope in Jesus. And while it just pains me to uh, have to cancel services for at least one week, we uh, do look at this as the best way to love our church family and to love the community around us as we do play our part in limiting uh, the spread of this virus that's going around. And so with that, uh, let's go ahead and turn to God's word. Uh, We're going to start in verse 8. We're going to read through the end of the chapter all the way through verse 15. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go from there. It says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which uh, he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face, who was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask um, that during these circumstances, uh, Lord, that you would intervene. Um, and even in our time of study as a family through the digital world, Lord, uh, we know that there is no barrier too strong or too high or too large for uh, the spirit. And so this feels weird and it feels awkward, Father, but we believe that your spirit can still illuminate these words uh, even across digital channels, Father. And so I would ask that as we study this together as a church family together, um, that your spirit would move uh, amongst us and, and draw our hearts towards God. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Oswald Chambers was an early 20th century Scottish Baptist teacher and evangelist who founded the Bible Training College in 1911, located in London, England. Within the first four years of the institution, there would be 106 resident students that attended, and by July of 1915, 40 of those students would be serving as active missionaries. Chambers' influence to anyone under his teaching was evident, but what Chambers is most known for now is actually his devotional entitled, My Utmost for His Highest. 
it's largely considered one of the most uh, popular religious books ever written. And, but surprisingly, the book wasn't actually penned by Oswald Chambers. It was penned by his widow who had taken shorthand notes on his teaching and instructions through the years. And there's one entry that has stuck with me through the years. Uh, at the very end, uh, this is what Oswald Chambers writes. He, he says that it requires the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours of every day as a saint, going through the drudgery and living an ordinary, unnoticed, and ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. It is ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets among ordinary people. Sometimes we get so caught up in the extraordinary nature of biblical events that we often forget that more often God works through the ordinary things of life. And sometimes God doesn't work through the extraordinary until we excel in faithfulness and obedience in the ordinary of life. Last week, we took a look at the first several verses of Acts chapter 6, and we found that the apostles had delegated seemingly ordinary tasks to a group of seven men, and one of which was named Stephen. Stephen was faithful and obedient to that ordinary task that God called him to, and what we will eventually come to find is that God uses such faithfulness and obedience from Stephen to propel the good news of Jesus Christ outside of Israel to the surrounding nations, to the non-Jewish world, what the Bible would describe as the Gentiles. The next three passages that we're going to look through in our time in Acts uh, is a turning point in the history of Christian mission. Uh, We will see a fundamental shift in the target audience of this mission. The target audience will primarily change from the Jewish people to the the Gentiles. And this shift is good news for us because as you sit here, if you are not of Jewish descent, you would be considered a Gentile. Uh, And the event that plays out through the next three passages all the way through the beginning of chapter 8 is a vital, albeit very painful step, that's necessary in the expansion of the gospel. And it all started with an ordinary man named Stephen, who was obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading. And so let's start in in verse 8 as we look at this passage. We were introduced to Stephen back in verse 5 as one of those men who serve the tables of those in need. But here in verse 8, we're told that he's actually doing great signs and wonders Um, And based on later verses in the text, Stephen is actually teaching. He's proclaiming the gospel. This is a very significant verse in Acts because for the very first time, the prominent public ministry of uh, signs and wonders and teaching is done by somebody other than the apostles. In this context the apostles would be looked at as the professionals. Right, right? They had the personal relationship with Jesus. They walked with him physically. They sat under his teaching. But now for the first time in Acts, 
we see that the gospel is being proclaimed not by an apostle, not by one of the professionals, but by Stephen. And so once again, as I mentioned last week, this, is com- this completely debunks that myth that the, the ministry of proclaiming the gospel in the community should be left to the quote-unquote professionals. No, full of grace and power and filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen, an ordinary man, who started ministry and was faithful to a seemingly ordinary task, is now doing extraordinary things. And his faith is no different from the faith that all Christians have, that you and I have. The Holy Spirit that empowers him is no different than the spirit that possesses us. What's exceptional in the ordinary nature of his faith, however is his willingness to trust Jesus and to take him at his word. While Stephen is not an apostle, uh, he he does follow their model, so it should come as no surprise uh, that he draws the attention of some opposition in verse 9. The opposition, we're told, comes from a synagogue. So we know that they were Jewish, uh, but it consists of people that are Cyrenian, Alexandrian, and from, from Cilicia and Asia. This group rises up against Stephen. Uh, This group are Hellenist Jews. Now, we took a look at what Hellenists were last week. It's a person of Jewish descent, uh, but they don't know how to speak Aramaic or or Hebrew. Uh, Greek was their primary or perhaps their only language. Uh, But these Hellenists are distinct from the Hellenists that we spoke of last week because the Hellenists last week were Jewish men and women who had converted to Christianity, whereas these Hellenists are uh, that rise up against Stephen remain Jewish. Um, and I think it's interesting as Luke, who writes the book of Acts, seems to go out of his way to mention that these Jewish people belong to a specific synagogue. Uh, it doesn't seem pertinent to the passage until you understand the function of synagogues and what ends up happening in this passage. This is the first time we actually read about a synagogue in Acts. Uh, Synagogues uh, in the Jewish faith serve a different purpose than the temple. We'll get to what the temple was in a bit, but I want us to understand that while there is some overlap between the two, the the temple is different than synagogues. Uh, A synagogue in Judaism is a place of worship, Uh, but specifically also a place of instruction. The primary task of synagogues is teaching the Jewish law, the Torah. It's also known as the law of God. And while the temple in Jerusalem has since been destroyed in our context, there are still synagogues that exist today. There's actually one right down the road on Old Zuck. Um, it uh, has an educational program available for students uh, from pre-K all the way through 12th grade. I was curious, and so I actually went on the uh, website of the synagogue, and I read about this educational institution, and it has a mission statement that says that the educational program is committed to fostering and instilling a reformed Jewish identity through lifelong educational experiences in a comfortable and inclusive environment. It's educational instruction. It's 
an intellectual institution. One of these days I'm going to call the rabbi up just to sit down and talk with him. I think it would be fascinating. But if I could bring us back to our passage, I think that Luke is setting us up to see that the opposition that they have against Stephen is a clash of intellect. It's a battle of proper teaching. You'll notice in verse 9 that they rise up and dispute with Stephen. With this understanding and later reading about the charges brought against Stephen, which we'll get to, we see that it wasn't the the wonders and the signs that provoked these Jewish men, uh, that provoked this opposition, but specifically what he was teaching. And this quickly becomes a debate. Uh, specifically between two kinds of teaching, a debate of intellect, a debate of thoughts. In our current culture, the word debate um, actually has kind of become a bad word. right? Our view of debate, uh, we view it negatively. But historically speaking, there has always been room for healthy debate. It can be a very um, formal and respected practice if done appropriately. However, in our postmodern context, we've seemed to have lost the art of face-to-face debate. In our postmodern context, we are, we are inundated with more information and exposed to a wider variety of thought than ever before. And this oversaturation of ideas has seemed to produce in us this lethargic apathy towards sorting and navigating through these ideas. Um, And we fail to utilize the resources and the tools that are available to us to help discern and uh, become well-informed, right? And one of the tools that we can use actually is proper debate. As the opposition attempts to debate with Stephen, they're are in for quite a surprise when they come to find that Stephen is actually quite a great debater. We see that Stephen is the type of guy that you would want on your speech and debate team because he absolutely owns them in this situation. They couldn't keep up. Uh, What do we see in verse 10? That they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' words in Luke 21. Uh, Jesus is speaking in the context of the disciples being persecuted, and uh, Jesus anticipates these debates that the disciples are going to have. And uh, listen to what he says in Luke 21, verse 15. Jesus says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This opposition... Um, struggles against Stephen in, in debate, as Jesus promised. And, and I think that there's three reasons that come straight from verse 10 and then later down in verse 15, well, why they struggled so much. First, we see that Stephen is a great debater because he had wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied, right? C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, has said that wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. 
Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great, uh, a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. And so there's an important distinction here. There's this two-step process. First, Stephen had to have knowledge. He had to be informed, right? And when we get into Acts 7, we'll find that Stephen is very well versed in uh, Jewish history and Jewish law. He knew his stuff. When we share the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ in our context, we need to do our due diligence to know our stuff. Peter reminds us later on in the Bible in his letter uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, he, he writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you uh, to give the reason for the hope that you have. Perhaps some of us fear sharing the gospel because we don't feel equipped. We don't feel prepared to give an answer. We, we haven't done the work of being a good student of God's Word. But it doesn't stop there. Once again, wisdom is knowledge applied. And so, yeah, we need to know our stuff. Stephen knew his stuff, but he takes what he knows about the Word of God and he applies it to his current situation. He saturates his approach with Scripture and then is able to relevantly apply it. And the reason that he can do this is the second part that we see in verse 10, that not only could they not withstand his wisdom, but they could also not withstand the spirit in which he was speaking. The reason he has wisdom, the reason he can apply such knowledge is because he is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we shouldn't mystify this, as if Stephen had no intellect, no knowledge of the law, and then all of a sudden, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he becomes this Jewish scholar in this great debater. No, how this works is the Holy Spirit's, uh, he uses Stephen's intellect and his willingness to speak, to influence the hearts of man. No, how this works is the Holy Spirit uses Stephen's intellect. He uses Stephen's willingness to speak to influence the hearts of man. Whenever we proclaim the gospel or preach God's word, something happens in the delivery of it. The Holy Spirit intervenes and translates where human words fall short. Even as I speak to you in this moment, and even as we go about Sunday morning, as I will tell you that I've studied, I've taken the time to search out Scripture, I've taken the necessary time to be a student of the Word. But when all that is said and done, I go to the Holy Spirit and I say, Lord, would you illuminate the words that come out of a mere man. As I preach, uh, uh, Lord, would you speak your word despite my sin and despite my inadequacy? The Holy Spirit takes my audible words 
that in some form are of human origination. My words are not divine, but in spirit, in the spirit, he translates them into spiritual food that edifies the church. It's a fascinating and altogether glorious process. So yes, there shouldn't be a single sermon that you listen to that hasn't been bathed in study and bathed in time and careful preparation. But there also shouldn't be a single sermon that you listen to that shouldn't be that, that hasn't been bathed in prayer and bathed in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is a great debater because he has wisdom, but also because he's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, if I could guide you to verse 15, we we also find that he's a great debater um, because he's able to keep his cool. He demonstrates self-control and emotional stability. Take a look at verse 15, what it says. This actually comes after the, the, the debate when these men resort to just charging him with false accusations. You know, verse 15 says that as they all gazed at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, believe it or not, I, I actually enjoy watching political debate from time to time. I enjoy the the banter from both sides. It it drives my wife mad as I sit there on my phone in the evening, you know, just looking at these certain debates on my phone. But I will tell you, in all of the times that I have watched those debates, I have never seen one look like the face of an angel (laughs) on both sides. Typically, when someone argues with you, emotions run high. And as tension increases and as you feel the need to defend yourself, it becomes, uh, as it becomes more emotional, our uh, faces actually become flushed and they get red. Perhaps there's blotchiness all around your neck. Your, your flushed skin is a natural response to anxiety, uh, to stress, to, uh, to anger, to the heightened emotion. I, I don't know about you, but I can actually feel when my face becomes fl- flushed and red. And, but this didn't happen with Stephen. No, there's something to be said here about Stephen's composure. It's reflecting God's glory. He's not getting agitated. He's not hot mad with anger. Stephen is standing his ground. Now maybe there's more to this. Perhaps this is a reference to how Moses reflected the glory of God in Exodus 34. But if anything, we can at least say that in the face of hostility, in the face of intense debate... Stephen is not responding in the same way that it seems like a normal person would. He's certainly not responding the way that the opposition is responding. No, they're growing tense and uh, start flaring up uh, to the point where they start uh, stirring up a crowd against Stephen. They're instigating this this crowd. It means that they're they're provoking people emotionally to come up against Stephen and turn on him. Uh, They're getting worked up uh, about what he's teaching. Now, we don't know 100% uh, what Stephen was 
teaching, but judging from the charges brought against him, we can actually get a pretty basic idea of what he's talking about. Verse 12 through 14 give us several hints about what what Stephen was saying, and they it puts a little flesh on this a little bit. We, we see that they accuse him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 13 says that he speaks words against this holy place, which would be the temple and the law. And even verse 14 mentions that there was some kind of claim that Jesus would destroy this place and uh, and change the customs that Moses delivered. Really, all three of those vo- uh, verses are alluding to the fact that Stephen's teaching had to do something with two very important things in Judaism. Uh, first, it had to do with the physical temple in Jerusalem. And second, it had to do with the law, or what we would know as the Old Testament, uh, which is the main scriptures for Judaism. And in order to understand why uh, this would have been so offensive to them, what Stephen was saying, we have to understand what the temple is and what the law is. I'll, I'll try and explain them both very briefly. If you were to visit the heart of Jerusalem, the very first and in, in, in the biggest and the most profound building that you would see is the temple. It's a beautiful building that represented the presence of God here on earth. It's, uh, to the Jewish people, it was where heaven and earth overlapped, uh, where, where God could dwell with his people. And believe it or not, the whole idea of the temple actually started way back in Genesis. Genesis 2 is a portrait of the temple. In Genesis 2, God creates this paradise. It's the Garden of Eden, and he creates man and uh, women, and God is present with, with, uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're in perfect harmony. This is why the temple actually had decor and imagery of golden flowers and shrubbery. It was uh, made to look like the Garden of Eden. It's believed, actually, that Jewish menorahs uh, represent the Tree of Life in Eden. And in Eden, Adam and Eve were instructed to work and keep the garden, which is the exact command given to the priests in regard to uh, the temple. They're, They're called to work and keep the temple. Now, if the temple represented God's presence, and we know that God is perfectly holy, then we know that his presence is also holy and perfect. And in order to be able to live in the presence of God, in order to dwell with God, we too must be holy. We must live by his standard. And this is where the law the law of Moses comes into play. It's the second thing that Stephen was charged with, speaking against the law. The law was given to the Israelites as a way for a sinful and corrupt people to live in God's holy, perfect presence. But the issue that the Israelites run into throughout history is that much like Adam and Eve, the Israelites decided that they didn't want to live by God's standards. 
they reject God's law and therefore reject his presence. And so just as God banished Adam and Eve from the garden because they wanted to live by their own rule, throughout history, Israel essentially is banished from the temple and exiled from Jerusalem, and the temple actually ends up getting destroyed. At that point in history, the prophets spoke of a day that God would restore the temple, that he would create a new temple, and through this new temple, he would establish a new rule, and once again, his presence would fill all of creation. However, when the Israelites returned from from exile, they still rejected God. And they did build a second temple. This is the temple that Stephen currently stands in as he stands trial. This temple, however, was called hopelessly corrupt by other Old Testament prophets. And so when Jesus comes around, he himself actually has some things to say about the temple and about the law of Moses. And while we don't know for sure what Stephen was teaching or what he said about the temple and the law in this passage, we actually can look at what Jesus said about the temple and about the law. Listen to this story from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Listen to this. This is what John writes. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus is in the temple, right? He's in this very same temple that Stephen's in right now. And listen to what happens. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In this story, The people think that Jesus is talking about the actual physical temple, but Jesus is only referring to his body, and he's foreshadowing his death uh, and his resurrection. But in doing so, in referring to his body as the temple, in a very real way, way, he is explaining that God's presence among us will be brought about through his death and resurrection. The exalted Christ replaces the temple. Jesus is saying, you know that temple that the the prophets spoke about long ago? The one that will truly be established and truly fill the world with the presence of God? 
That's me. I am that temple that they spoke about. But in order to do this, Jesus also has to have a word about the law. And because the law of God and the presence of God are connected. In order to be in the presence of God, you have to, to follow the law of God. And so what does Jesus say about the law? Well, Mark 5.17 is helpful in this regard. In this verse, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This verse is why we can't unhitch from the Old Testament. Because Jesus didn't unhitch from the Old Testament. In fact, it's forever connected. We're forever connected to the law. Jesus is forever connected to the law because he fulfilled it. This is the difference between Judaism and Christianity. One commentator says that this, this new way, this way that Stephen is preaching about, it isn't against the law, but rather a realization of it. I've heard it been said that Christianity is really just Judaism properly understood. A few weeks back, we opened up a new puzzle that was given to me at Christmas time. I was really excited to open this thing up. It was a panoramic uh, view of the Cleveland Indians ballpark. And as I'm putting these pieces together and as I'm sorting the pieces out, something just didn't quite seem right. Right, I'm looking at the sky and it looks like a little bit of a, of a different color and um, it, it, it got very strange because as I, as I came across pieces, they actually didn't have the Cleveland Indians logo on it. They actually had the Minnesota Twins logo on them. And, and as I slowly worked to put the first few pieces together, it didn't take too long for me to realize that the puzzle I was putting together was the wrong puzzle. It it wasn't the puzzle that I wanted to put together. It wasn't the puzzle that was showed on the box. Some Minnesota Twins fan played a really funny prank on Indians fans in the puzzle factory, if you will. Uh, And you can imagine how frustrating it is to try and piece together a puzzle that doesn't represent the picture on the box. For these Jewish people debating against Stephen, they have the right box in the law. They have the right picture. But they're putting together the wrong puzzle. And so what does this mean? That that Jesus represents the new temple and that he doesn't abolish the law but fulfills it. Well, we know that no living human being has ever been able to live up to God's law, to his standard, except Jesus. And God requires the law to enter fully and permanently in his presence. And Jesus fulfills that law on our behalf. Those perfect requirements that are laid out in the law in order for us to be in communion with God are fulfilled through Jesus. And now, 
anyone who submits to Jesus as Lord and Savior in turn fulfills the law through Jesus. And this is the great hope that we have in him. You may often hear that phrase that Jesus died for you, that he died in your place. But we must also understand that not only did he die for you, but he lived for you. He not only died in your place, but he lived in your place so that you may experience God's perfect presence forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and we praise you, Lord, that your requirements are perfection. That this is what you require, Father, because we wouldn't want to be in your presence if it didn't require perfection, Lord, because it would be no better than what we're doing now. Uh, We thank you for your holy requirements, Lord, but we also praise you and thank you that while we couldn't fulfill those requirements, uh, Jesus did on our behalf. I thank you, Father, that Christ not only died for me, but that he also lived for me. And so may I embrace and may we as a church family and as a church body embrace the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining me, church. I really appreciate it. I hope that we don't have to do this again and that we'll be together uh, again next Sunday. But I do want you to know that we, we miss you and that we love you and we're praying with you. I, I would invite you to pray along with us as uh, we walk through this journey together. Have a wonderful day. God bless.